Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Scary Stories from a Graveyard, as well as our second episode of the 13 Tales of October. Tonight, I come to you from Quaker Valley Cemetery in Riverton, Kansas. This is the second cemetery I will be visiting purported to have a witch's grave within. Let me tell you a little bit about this one, which I found from the site Finding Folktales, which is findingfolktales.wordpress.com. There is a grave that is rumored to belong to a witch. Fourteen-year-old Maidy Knotts was burnt at the stake, purportedly, accused of being a witch in the year 1904. The time from midnight to around three o'clock in the morning is known to some as the witching hour. This is the time when witches, demons, and ghosts are said to appear. If you should go to the witch's grave at 3.33 a.m., you are supposedly going to hear disembodied voices, see apparitions, and some have even claimed to see the ghost of Doberman's circling May's grave. Yes, that's... Quite similar to what we heard last time, wasn't it, my friends? I believe they even had their own tale of visiting here. Let me relay that now to you. It was a cool autumn day, and I was riding in my mother's car, my brother and his girlfriend at the time were following behind us. I believe I was around 13 or 14 at the time, and we decided to drive by the witch's grave because I had never seen it. So my mother began the short journey to Quaker Valley Cemetery. When we entered the cemetery, my mother drove right to May's headstone. My mo mother knew exactly how to get there without looking at directions, which made me wonder how many times she had actually been there. Then my mother read the inscription to me. Remember, my remember, friends, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you, so you will be. Prepare for death and follow me. After reading the inscription, my mother and I decided to take our leave. <laughs> we passed by, or passed my brother and his girlfriend on the way back down the road. Later, when we met up, my brother told us about their experience at the grave. I remember he said, Wasn't that doll on the grave really creepy? There was no doll on the grave when my mother and I went to the grave and it is very unlikely that someone put it there between our visits. There was only a minute or less between our visits. If someone had placed it there, they would have had to be very quick. Even if that was the case, how could they have known we were together? No one knew. No one we knew lived out there, and we told no one where we were planning to go. My brother is not a person that would lie just to scare us, and when he said it, it seemed like he thought we had seen the same doll. I think I will stop there and let you read the rest of their story from their website, which was findingfolktales.wordpress.com. I will have a link in the description. So now I am wandering through the cemetery myself, seeing if I can 
come upon this particular grave. I haven't yet, but I have been focusing on bringing you the tale, for, at least in part. I will do a bit of wandering here, just quickly, while speaking with you, my friends. It's a rather small cemetery, not very large at all. Not like the last one, which was quite large, in fact. Pardon me as I come through here. I mean no disrespect to anyone. Hmm. Some of the graves have fallen over. But I am not seeing the particular one. I have a picture of it for reference, and I just do not see it. Perhaps I'm looking in the wrong area. That is quite possible. Hmm, though I might... No, I do not see it. My apologies. I would like to share a picture of it with you as well. And I will endeavor to do so when I do find it later on, my friends. So now we will go on to our tale for the evening. It will be coming from the book that we read the introduction for last time, and that is the book Modern, or apologies, Famous Modern Ghost Stories actually produced in the early 1900s. So it was modern when they produced it, but not so much now. <laughs> and the story that I'm going to bring to you is actually the first chapter of a much larger story than I normally bring to you. I will be bringing you each individual chapter for the first few, you know, first few uh, cemetery visits this month, and uh, the name of this tale is The Willows by Algernon Blackwood, which was briefly mentioned in the introduction. If you missed that, you might want to go back and listen to that tale. Alright. <clears throat> the Willows by Algernon Blackwood Chapter 1 After leaving Vienna, and long before you come to Budapest, the Danube enters a region of singular loneliness and desolation, where its waters spread away on all sides regardless of a main channel and the country becomes a swamp for miles upon miles, covered by a vast sea of low willow bushes. On the big maps, this deserted area is painted in a fluffy blue, growing fainter in color as it leaves the banks. And across it may be seen in large straggling letters the word Somfi, meaning marshes. <laughs> in high flood, this great acreage of sand, shingle beds, and willow grown islands is almost topped by the water. But in normal seasons, the bushes. <clears throat> the bushes bend and rustle in the free winds, showing their silver leaves to the sunshine in an ever-moving plain of bewildering beauty. These willows never attain to the dignity of trees. They have no rigid trunks. They remain humble bushes with rounded tops and soft outline, swaying on slender stems that answer to the least pressure of the wind supple as grasses, and so continually shifted 
that they somehow give the impression that the entire plane is moving and alive. For the wind sends waves rising and falling over the whole surface, waves of leaves instead of waves of water. Green swells like the sea, too, until the branches turn and lift, and then silvery white as their underside turns to the sun. Happy to slip beyond the control of stem stern banks, the Danube here wanders about at will among the intricate network of channels intersecting the islands everywhere with broad avenues down which the waters pour with a shouting sound, making whirlpools, eddies, and foaming rapids, tearing at the sandy banks, carrying away masses of shore and willow clumps, and forming new islands innumerable, which shift daily in size and shape, and possess at best an impermanent life, since the flood time obliterates their very existence. Properly speaking, this fascinating part of the river's life begins soon after leaving Pressburg, and we, in our Canadian canoe, with gypsy tent and frying pan on board, reached it on the crest of a rising flood about mid-July. That very same morning, when the sky was reddening before the sunrise, we had slipped swiftly through still-sleeping Vienna, leaving it a couple hours later. A couple of hours later, and a, a mere patch of smoke against the blue hills of the Wienerwald on the Rarazin. And we breakfasted below Fischermarand, under a grove of birch trees roaring in the wind, and had then swept up, or swept on the tearing current path past Orth, Heinberg, Petronel, the old Roman canaritum of Marcus Aurelius, and so under the frowning heights of the Ben on a spur of the Carpathians, where the march steals in quietly from the left, and the frontier is crossed between Austria and Hungary. Racing along at twelve kilometers an hour soon took us well into Hungary, and the muddy waters, a sure sign of flood, sent us aground a many, on many a shingle bed, and twisted us like a cork in, a, in many a sudden belching whirlpool before the towers of Pressburg, Hungarian Posoni, shone, showed against the sky. And then the canoe, leaping like a spirited horse, flew at top speed under the gray walls negotiated safely the sunken chain at the Flygen Brook Ferry, turned the corner sharply to the left, and plunged on yellow foam into the wilderness of islands, sandbanks, and swampland beyond the land of the willows. The change came suddenly, as when a series of bioscope pictures snaps down on the streets of a town and shifts without warning into the scenery of lake and forest. We entered the land of desolation on wings, and in less than half an hour there were neither boat, boat nor fishing hut, nor red roof, nor any single sign of human habitation and civilization within sight. The sense of remoteness from the world of humankind, the utter isolation, the fascination of the singular world of willows, winds, and waters, instantly laid its spell upon us both, so that we allowed laughingly to one another that we ought by rights 
to have held some special kind of passport to admit us, and that we had, somewhat audaciously, come without asking leave into a separate little kingdom of wonder and magic, a kingdom that was reserved for the use of others who had a right to it, with everywhere unwritten warnings to trespassers for those who had the imagination to discover them. Though still early in the afternoon, the ceaseless buffetings of a most tempestuous wind made us feel wary, and we at once began casting about for a suitable camping ground for the night. But the bewildering, bewildering character of the islands made landing difficult. The swirling flood carried us inshore, and then swept us out again. The willow branches tore our hands as we seized them to stop the canoe, and we pulled many a yard of sandy bank into the water before at length we shot with a great sideways blow from the wind into a backwater and managed to beach the bow, bow beach the bows in a cloud of spray. Then we lay panting and laughing after our exertions on a hot yellow sand sheltered from the wind and in the full blaze of a scorching sun a cloudless blue sky above and an immense army of dancing shouting willow bushes closing in from all sides shining with spray and clapping their thousand little hands as though to applaud the success of our efforts What a river, I said to my companion, thinking of all the way we had traveled from the source in the black forest, and how we had often been obliged to wade and push in the upper shallows at the beginning of June. Won't stand much nonsense now, will it? he said, pulling the canoe a little further into safety up the sand, and then composing himself for a nap. I lay by his side happy and peaceful in the bath of the elements, water, wind, sand, and the great fire of the sun, thinking of the long journey that lay behind us, and of the great stretch before us to the Black Sea, and how lucky I was to have such a delightful and charming traveling companion as my friend, the Swede. We had made many similar journeys together, but the Danube, more than any other river I knew, impressed us from the very beginning with its aliveness. From its tiny bubbling entry into the world among the pinewood gardens of Donashin, until this moment when it began to play the great river game of losing itself among the deserted swamps, unobserved, unrestrained. It had seemed to us like following the growth of some living creature, sleepy at first, but later developing violent desires as it became conscious of its deep soul. It rolled like some huge fluid being through all the countries we had passed, holding our little craft on its mighty shoulders, playing roughly with us sometimes, yet always friendly and well-meaning, till at length we had come inevitably to regard it as a great personage. How indeed could it be otherwise, since it told us so much of its secret life? At night we heard it singing to the moon as we lay in our tent, uttering that odd, sibilant note peculiar to itself, and said to be caused by the rapid tearing of the pebbles along its bed, so great is its hurrying speed. We knew, too, the voice of its gurgling whirlpools, suddenly bubbling up on a surface previously quite calm. The roar of its shallows and swift rapids, its constant steady thundering below all mere surface sounds, and that ceaseless tearing of its icy waters at the banks.
how it stood up and shouted when the rains fell flat upon its face, and how its laughter roared out when the wind blew upstream and tried to stop its growing speed. We knew all its sounds and voices, its tumblings and foamings, its unnecessary splash, splashing against the bridges. That self-conscious chatter, when there were hills to look on, the affected dignity of its speech when it passed through the little towns, far too important to laugh, and all these faint, sweet whisperings, when the sun caught it fairly in some slow curve and poured down upon it till the stream rose. It was full of tricks, too, in its early life before the great world knew it. There were places in the upper reaches among the Swabian forest, yet when yet the first whisperings of its destiny had not reached it, where it elected to disappear through holes in the ground, to appear again on the other side of the porous limestone hills and start a new river with another name. Leaving, too, so little water in its own bed that we had to climb out and wade and push the canoe through miles of shallows, and a chief pleasure in those early days of its irresponsible youth was to lie low like Br'er Fox just before the little turbulent tributaries came to join it from the Alps and to refuse to acknowledge them when in but to the run for miles side by side the dividing line well marked the very levels different the Danube utterly declining to recognize the newcomer. Below Paso, however, it gave up this particular trick, for there the inn comes in. with a thundering power impossible to ignore, and so pushes and incommodes the parent river that there is hardly room for them in the long, twisting gorge that follows. And the Danube is shoved this way and that against the cliffs, and forced to hurry itself with great waves and much dashing to and fro in order to get through in time. And during the fight, our canoe slipped down from its shoulder to its breast and had the time of its life among the struggling waves. But the inn taught the old river a lesson, and after Paso, it no longer pretended to ignore new arrivals. This was many days back, of course, and since then we had come to know other aspects of the great creature, and across the Bavarian wheat plain of Strabing, or Stobbing, Stropping, we wandered so slowly under the blazing June sun that we could well imagine only the surface inches were water while below there moved, concealed as by a silken mantle, a whole army of Undines, passing silently and unseen down to the sea, and very leisurely, too, lest they be discovered. Much, too, we forgave, because, we forgave her because of her friendliness to the birds and animals that haunted the shores. Excuse me. Coromorants lined the banks in lonely places and rose like short black palings. Gray cows, or gray crows, <laughs> gray crows, my apologies, I tickled my own funny bone there. 
Grey crows crowded the shingle beds. Storks stood fishing in the vistas of shallower water that opened up between the islands, and hawks, swans, and marsh birds of all sorts filled the air with glinting wings and singing petulant cries. It was impossible to feel annoyed with the river's vagaries after seeing a deer leap with a splash into the water at sunrise and swim past the bows of the canoe. The bows of the canoe, I suppose. <laughs> and often we saw fawns peering at us from the underbrush or looked straight into the brown eyes of a stag as we charged full tilt round a corner and entered another reach of the river. Foxes, too, everywhere haunted the banks, tripping daintily among the driftwood and disappearing so suddenly that it was impossible to see how they managed it. But now, after leaving Pressburg, everything changed a little, and the Danube became more serious. It ceased trifling. It was halfway to the Black Sea, within scenting distance almost of other stranger countries, where no tricks would be permitted or understood. It became suddenly grown up, and claimed our respect and even our awe. It broke out into three arms, for one thing, that only met again a hundred kilometers further down, and for a canoe there was no, there were no indications which one was intended to be followed. If you take a side channel, said the Hungarian officer we met in the Pressburg shop while buying provisions, you may find yourselves, when the flood subsides, forty miles from anywhere, high and dry, and you may easily starve. There are no people, no farms, no fishermen. I warn you not to continue. The river, too, is still rising, and this wind will increase. The rising river did not alarm us in the least, but the matter of being left high and dry by a sudden subsidence of the waters might be serious, and we had consequently laid in an extra stock of provisions. For the rest, the officer's prophecy held true and the wind blowing down a perfectly clear sky increased steadily till it reached the dignity of a westerly gale. Just a moment, my friends. It was earlier than usual when we camped, for the sun was a good hour or two from the horizon, and leaving my friend still asleep on the hot sand, I wandered about in desultory examination of our hotel. The island, I found, was less than an acre in extent, a mere sandy bank standing some two or three feet above the level of the river. The far end, pointing into the sunset, was covered with flying spray which the tremendous wind drove off the crests of the broken waves. It was triangular in shape, with the apex upstream. I stood there for several minutes, watching the impetuous crimson flood bearing down with a shouting roar, dashing in waves against the bank as though to sweep it bodily away, and then swirling in or swirling by in two forming streams on either side. The ground seemed to shake with the shock and rush, while the furious movement of the willow bushes, as the wind poured over them, increased the curious illusion that the island itself actually moved. Above, for a mile or two, I could see the great river descending upon me. It was like looking up the slope of a sliding hill, white with foam, and leaping up everywhere to show itself to the sun. The rest of the island was too thickly grown 
with willows to make walking pleasant. But I made the tour, nevertheless. From the lower end, the light, of course, changed, and the river looked dark and angry. Only the backs of the flying waves were visible, streaked with foam, and pushed forcibly by the great puffs of wind that fell upon them from behind. For a short mile it was visible, pouring in and out among the islands, and then disappearing with a huge sweep into the willows, which closed about it like a herd of monstrous antediluvian creatures crowded, crowding down to drink. They made, us, they made me think of gigantic sponge-like throats that sucked the river up into themselves. They caused it to vanish from sight. They herded there together in such overpowering numbers. Altogether, it was an impressive scene, with its utter loneliness, its bizarre suggestion. And as I gazed, long and curiously, a singular emotion began to stir somewhere in the depths of me. Midway in my delight of the wild beauty, there crept unbidden and unexplained a curious feeling of disquietude almost of alarm. A rising river perhaps always suggests something of the ominous. Many of the little islands I saw before me would probably have been swept away by the morning. This restless or resistless thundering flood of water touched the sense of awe, yet I was aware of my, that my uneasiness lay deeper far than the emotions of awe and wonder. It was not that I felt, nor had it directly, <clears throat> excuse me, nor had it directly to do with the power of the driving wind, this shouting hurricane that might almost carry up a few acres of willows into the air and scatter them like so much chaff over the landscape. The wind was simply enjoying itself, for nothing rose out of the, the flat landscape to stop it, and I was conscious of sharing its great game with a kind of pleasurable excitement. Yet this novel emotion had nothing to do with the wind. Indeed, so vague was the sense of distress that I experienced, that accordingly, though I was aware somehow that it had to do with my realization of the utter insignificance before this unrestrained power, it too, oh, this unrestrained power of the element about me, the huge grown river had something to do with it too. A vague, unpleasant idea that we had somehow trifled with these great elemental forces in whose power we lay helpless every hour of the day and night. For here, indeed, they were gigantically at play together, and the sight appealed to the imagination. But my emotion, so far as I could understand it, seemed to attach itself more particularly to the willow bushes to these acres and acres of willows, crowding so thickly growing there, swarming everywhere the eye could reach, pressing upon the river as though to suffocate it, standing in dense array, mile, upon, mile after mile beneath the sky, watching, waiting, listening, and apart quite from the elements, the willows connected themselves subtly with my malaise attacking the wind insidiously, somehow by reason of their vast numbers, and contriving in some way or other to represent to the imagination a new and mighty power, a power, moreover, not altogether friendly to us. Great revelations of nature, of course, never fail to impress in one way or another, 
and I was no stranger to moods of the kind. Mountains over all, and oceans terrify, while the mystery of the great forests exercises a spell peculiarly of its own. But all these, at one point or another, somewhere link on intimately with human life and human experience. They stir comprehensible, even if alarming, emotions. They tend, on the whole, to exalt. With this multitude of willows, however, it was something far different. I felt. Some essence emanated from them that besieged the heart. A sense of awe awakened, true, but of awe touched somewhere by a vague terror. Their serried banks, or serried ranks, growing everywhere darker about me, as the shadows deepened, moving furiously, let softly in the wind, woke me in the curious and unwelcome suggestion that we had trespassed here upon the borders of an alien world, a world where we were intruders, a world where we were not wanted or invited to remain, where we ran grave risks, perhaps. The feeling, however, though it refused to yield its meaning entirely to analysis, did not at the time trouble me by passing into menace. Yet it never left me quiet, even during the very practical business of putting up the tent in a hurricane of wind and building a fire for the stew-pot. It remained just enough to bother and perplex, and to rob a most delightful camping ground of a good portion of its charm. To my companion, however, I said nothing, for I was a man considered devoid of imagination. In the first place, oh, he was a man, yes. In the first place, I could never have explained to him what I meant, and in the second, he would have laughed stupidly at me if I had. There was a slight depression in the center of the island, and here we pitched the tent. The surrounding willows broke the wind a bit. A poor camp, observed the imperturbable Swede, when at last the tent was lit upright. No stones or precious little firewood. I'm for moving on early tomorrow, eh? This sand won't hold anything. But the experience of a collapsing tent at midnight had taught us many devices, and we made the cozy gypsy house as safe as possible, and then set about collecting a store of wood to last till bedtime. Willow bushes dropped no branches, and driftwood was our only source of supply. We hunted the shores pretty thoroughly. Everywhere the banks were crumbling as the rising flood tore at them and carried away great portions with a splash and a gurgle. The island's much smaller than we landed than when we landed, said the accurate Swede. It won't last long at this rate. We'd better drag the canoe close to the tent and be ready to start at a moment's notice. I shall sleep in my clothes. He was a little distance off, climbing along the bank, and I heard his rather jolly laugh as he spoke. By Jove, I heard him call a moment later, and turned to see what had caused his exclamation, but for the moment he was hidden by the willows, and I could not find him. What in the world's this? I heard him cry again, and this time his voice had become serious. I ran up quickly and joined him on the bank. He was looking over the river, pointing at something in the water. Good heavens, it's a man's body, I, he cried excitedly. Look! A black thing, turning over and over in the foaming waves, swept rapidly past. It kept disappearing and coming up to the surface again. It was about twenty feet from the shore, and just as it was opposite to where we stood, it lurched round and looked straight at us. We saw its eyes reflecting the sunset, and gleaming an odd yellow as the body turned over. Then it gave a swift, gulping plunge, and dived out of sight in a flash. "'An otter, by gad!' we exclaimed in the same breath, laughing. 
It was an otter, alive, and out on the hunt. Yet it had looked exactly like the body of a drowned man turning helplessly in the current. Far below it came to the surface once again, and we saw its black skin, wet and shining in the sunlight. Then, too, just as we turned back, our arms full of driftwood, another thing happened to recall us to the riverbank. This time, it, was, it really was a man, of what was more, a man in a boat. Now, a small boat on the Danube was an unusual sight at any time, but here in this deserted region, and at flood time, it was so unexpected as to constitute a real event. We stood instead. Whether it was due to the slanting sunlight, or the refraction from the wonderfully illumined water, I cannot say, but whatever the cause, I found it difficult to focus my sight properly upon the flying apparition. It seemed, however, to be a man standing upright in a sort of flat-bottomed boat, steering with a long oar, and being carried down the opposite shore at a tremendous pace. He apparently was looking across in our direction, but the distance was too great and the light too uncertain for us to make out very plainly what he was about. It seemed to me that he was just gesticulating and making signs at us. His voice came across the water to us, shouting something furiously, but the wind drowned it so that no single word was audible. There was something curious about the whole appearance, man, boat, signs, voice, that made an impression on me of all proportion to its cause. "'He's crossing himself!' I cried. "'Look, he's making the sign of the cross!' "'I believe you're right,' the Swede said, shading his eyes with his hand and watching the man out of sight. He seemed to be gone in a moment, melting away down there into the sea of willows where the sun caught them in the bend of the river and turned them into a great crimson wall of beauty. Mist, too, had begun to rise, so that the air was hazy. Just a moment, my friends. But what in the world is he doing at nightfall at nightfall in this on this flooded river? I said, half to myself. Where is he going at such a time, and what did he mean by his signs and shouting? Do you think he wished us to wish to warn us about something? He saw our smoke and thought we were spirits, probably, laughed my companion. These Hungarians believe in all sorts of rubbish. You remember the shopwoman at Pressburg warning us that no one ever landed here because it belonged to some sort of beings outside man's world? I suppose they believe in fairies and elementals, possibly demons, too. That peasant in the boat saw people on the islands for the first time in his life, he added, after a slight pause, and it scared him. That's all. The Swede's tone of voice was not convincing, and his manner lacked something that was usually there. I noted the change instantly while, we, while he talked, though without being able to label it precisely. If they had enough imagination, I laughed loudly. I remember taking, trying to make as much noise as I could. They might well people a place like this with the old gods of antiquity. The Romans must have haunted all this region more or less with their shrines and sacred groves and elemental deities. The subject dropped, and we returned to our stew-pot, for my friend was not given to imaginative conversation as a rule. Moreover, moreover, just when I remembered, just then I remember, feeling distinctly glad that he was not imaginative. His stolid, practical nature suddenly seemed to me welcome and comforting. It was an admirable temperament, I felt. He could steer down rapids like a red Indian, shoot dangerous bridges and whirlpools better than any white man I have ever saw on a canoe. He was a grand fellow for an adventurous trip, a tower of strength when untoward things happened. 
I looked at his strong face and light curly hair as he staggered along under his pile of driftwood, twice the size of mine, and I experienced a feeling of relief. Yes, I was distinctly glad just then to, that the Swede was what he was, and that he never made remarks that suggested more than they said. The river's still rising, though, he added, as if following out some thoughts of his own, and dropping his load with a gasp. This island will be underwater in two days if it goes on. I wish the wind would go down, I said. I don't care a fig for the river. The flood, indeed, had no terrors for us. We could get off at ten minutes' notice, and then, and the more water, the better we liked it. It meant an increasing current and the obliteration of the treacherous shingle beds that so often threatened to tear the bottom out of our canoe. Contrary to our expectations, the wind did not go down with the sun. It seemed to increase with this darkness, howling overhead and shaking the willows round us like straws. Curious sounds accompanied it sometimes, like the explosion of heavy guns, and it fell upon the water and the island in a great flat blows, in great flat blows of immense power. It made me think of the sounds a planet must make, could we only hear it, driving along through space. But the sky kept wholly clear of clouds, and soon after supper, the full moon rose up in the east and covered the river and the plain of shouting willows with a light like, a, like the day. We lay on the sandy patch beside the fire, smoking, listening to the noises of the night around us, and talking happily of the journey we had already made and of our plans ahead. The map lay spread in the door of the already made, oh, in the tent, but the high wind made it hard to study, and presently we lowered the curtain and extinguished the lantern. The firelight was enough to smoke and see each other's faces by, and the sparks flew about overhead like fireworks. A few yards beyond, <clears throat> the river gurgled and hissed, and from time to time a heavy splash announced the falling away of further portions of the bank. Our talk, I noticed, had to do with the faraway scenes and incidents of our first camps in the Black, River, Black Forest, or of some other subjects altogether, remote and from the present setting, for neither of us spoke of the actual movement or moment more than was necessary, almost as though we had agreed tactically, tactically to avoid discussion of the camp and its incidents. Neither the otter nor the boatman, for instance, received the honor of a single mention, though ordinarily these would have furnished discussion for the greater part of the evening. They were, of course, distinct events in such a place. The scarcity of wood made it a business to keep the fire going, for the wind that drove the smoke in our faces wherever we sat helped at the same time to make a forced draught. We took it in turn to make foraging expeditions into the darkness, and the quantity of the and the quantity the Swede brought back always made me feel that he took an absurdly long time finding it, for the fact was I did not care much about being left alone, and yet it always seemed to be my turn to grub about among the bushes or scramble along the slippery banks in the moonlight. The long day's battle with wind and water, such wind and such water, had tired us both, and an early bed was the obvious program. Yet neither of us made the move for the tent. We lay there, tending the fire, talking in desultory fashion, peering about us into the dense willow bushes, and listening to the thunder of wind and river. The loneliness of the place that had entered our very bones, and silence seemed natural, for after a bit the sound of our voices became a trifle unreal and forced. 
Whispering would have been the fitting mode of communication, I felt, and the human voice, always rather absurd among, amid the roar of the elements, now carried with it something almost illegitimate. It was like talking out loud in church, or in some place where it was not lawful, perhaps not quite safe to be overheard. Just one moment, my friends. The eeriness of this lonely island, set among a million willows, swept up by a hurricane, and surrounded by hurrying deep waters, touched us both, I fancy, untrodden by man, almost unknown to man. It lay there beneath the moon, remote from her human influence, on the frontier of another world, an alien world, a world tenanted by willows only, and the souls of willows, and we in our rashness had dared to invade it, even to make use of it. Something more than the power of its mystery stirred in me as I lay on the sand, feet to fire, and peered up through the leaves at the stars. For the last time I rose to get firewood. When this has burnt up, I said firmly, I shall turn in. And my companion watched me lazily as I moved off into the surrounding shadows. For an unimaginative man, I thought he seemed unusually receptive that night, unusually open to suggestion of things other than sensory. He, too, was touched by the beauty and loneliness of the place. I was not altogether pleased, I remember, to recognize this slight change in him, and instead of immediately collecting sticks, I made my way to the far point of the island where the moonlight on plain and river could be seen to better advantage. The desire to be alone had come up suddenly upon me. My former dread returned in force. There was a vague feeling in me I wished to face and probe to the bottom. When I reached the point of sand jutting out among the waves, the spell of the place descended upon me with a positive shock. No mere scenery could have produced such an effect. There was something more here, something to alarm. I gazed across the waste of wild waters. I watched the whispering willows. I heard the ceaseless beating of the tireless wind, and one and all, each in its own way, stirred in me this sensation of a strange distress. But the willows, especially, for ever they went on chattering and talking among themselves, laughing a little, shrilly crying out, sometimes sighing, but what it was they made so much to do about belonged to the secret life of the great plain they inhabited. And it was utterly alien to the world I knew, or to that of the wild yet kindly elements. They made me think of a host of beings from another plane of life, another evolution altogether, perhaps, all discussing a mystery known only to themselves. I watched them moving busily together, oddly shaking their big bushy heads, twirling their myriad leaves even when there was no wind. They moved of their own will as though alive, and they touched, by some incalculable method, my own keen sense of the horrible. There they stood in the moonlight, like a vast army surrounding our camp, shaking their innumerable silver spears defiantly, all uh, formed all ready for an attack. The psychology of places, for some imaginations at least, is very vivid. For the wanderer, especially, camps have their note, either of welcome or rejection. At first it may not always be apparent, because the busy preparations of tent and cooking prevent, but with the first pause, after su supper usually, it comes and announces itself. And the note of this willow camp now became unmistakably plain to me, we were interlopers, trespassers, and we were not welcomed. The sense of unfamiliarity grew upon me as I stood there watching. We touched the frontier of a region where our presence was resented. For a night's lodging we might perhaps be tolerated, 
but for a prolonged and inquisitive stay, no. By all the gods of the trees in the wilderness, no. We were the first human influences upon this island, and we were not wanted. The willows were against us. Strange thoughts like these, bizarre fancies, born I know not whence, found lodgment in my mind as I stood listening. What I thought, if, after all, these crouching willows proved to be alive, if suddenly they should rise up, like a swarm of living creatures, marshaled by the gods whose territory we had invaded, sweep towards us off the vast swamps. booming overhead in the night, and then settle down. As I looked, it was so easy to imagine. They actually moved, crept nearer, retreated a little, huddled together in masses, hostile, waiting for the great wind that should finally start them a-running. I could have sworn their aspect changed a little, and their ranks deepened and pressed more closely together. <clears throat> Just a moment more, my friends. All right. The melancholy shrill cry of a night bird sounded overhead, and suddenly I nearly lost my balance as the piece of bank I stood upon fell with a great splash into the water, a river. Undermined by the flood, I stepped back just in time and went on hunting for firewood again, half laughing at the odd fancies that crowded so thickly into my mind and cast their spell upon me. I recall the Swede's remark about moving on next day, and I was just thinking that I fully agreed with him when I turned with a start and saw the subject of my thoughts standing immediately in front of me. He was quite close. The roar of the elements had covered his approach. You've been gone so long, he shouted above the wind. I thought something must have happened to you. But there was that in his tone and a certain look in his face as well, that conveyed to me more than his actual words, and in a flash I understood the real reason for his coming. It was because the spell of the place had entered his soul too, and he did not like being alone. River still rising, he cried, pointing to the river, the flood in the moonlight, and the wind simply awful. He always said the same things, but it was, it was the cry for companionship that gave the real importance to his words. Lucky, I cried back. Our tent's in the hollow. I think it'll hold all right. I added something about the difficulty of finding wood in order to explain my absence, but the wind caught my words and flung them across the river so that he did not hear, but just looked at me through the branches, nodding his head. Lucky if we get away without disaster, he shouted, or words to that effect. And I remember feeling half angry with him for putting the thought into words, for it was exactly what I felt myself. There was disaster beating somewhere, and the sense of presentiment, presentiment lay unpleasantly upon me. We went back to the fire and made a final blaze, poking it up with our feet. We took a last look around, but for the wind the heat would have been unpleasant. I put this thought into words, and I remember my friend's reply stuck, struck me oddly, that he would rather have the heat, the ordinary July weather, than this diabolical wind. Everything was snug for the night, the canoe lying turned over beside the tent, with both yellow paddles beneath her, the provision sack hanging from a willow tree stem, and the washed-up dishes removed to a safe distance from the fire, all ready for the morning meal. We smothered the embers of the fire with sand, and then turned in. The flap of the tent door was up, and I saw the branches and the stars in the white moonlight, the shaking willows and the heavy buffetings of the wind against our taut little house were the last things I remembered as sleep came down and covered all 
with its soft and delicious forgetfulness. Well, that's going to be it for this night, my friends. I hope you enjoyed the first chapter of The Willows. It got uh, quite interesting there toward the end, didn't it, Dot? I'm looking, I'm looking forward to the rest of that story. Until then, my friends, I hope that you have a pleasant evening and a good tomorrow. And I hope to see you again so very soon. <laughs>